Hey there, and welcome to Pick 6 Movies. If you're a regular around here, thanks for coming back to our little amusement park of snark, but if you're brand new, let me fill you in on what you've gotten yourself into. My name is Bo Ransdell, and I am joined by my oldest and dearest friend Chad Cooper in a now 21-season journey to collect a set of six movies every season, built around a common theme, to dissect and dish over until we can honestly say we don't ever have to think about these movies again. What does that mean for you, our treasured listener? Why you get an introduction from one of us about the movie we're discussing, peppered in with some history and storytelling to make it slip more easily into your ears, and then we join forces to mosey through the movie. This season is Crichton the Middle with You, in which we look at movies inspired by and in some cases directed by best-selling and very tall author Michael Crichton. For this second episode, Chad has served up some Western stew in the form of Crichton's seminal film, Westworld. So now that you know what you're in for, you can kick back and relax, put up those heels, and settle in for a new episode of Pick 6 Movies. Take it away, Chad! Oh man, there's a lot of monkey fur still in this place. Um, Hey! Bertram the Intern! Bertram, that's an interesting name. I'm assuming a family name, or I hope it is Bertram. Yeah. Congratulations. Bertram, what introduction are we recording today? I did not read any of my email. Westworld! Fantastic! Have you seen the movie Westworld? Ah, I watched the first season of the HBO series inspired by the movie Westworld, but much like the Hannibal Lecter films, when Anthony Hopkins said goodbye, so did I. You like movies about robot doodads that get all uppity and try to kill people, Bertram? Like your Terminators or your Short Circuits or your Wallies, Bertram? You know what, Bertram? You're right. Pick Six Bot is a perfect example of an uppity robot doodad that got all full of herself. And, you know, although I can't prove it, she's probably tried to kill some people. Have you met Pick Six Bot? I put her in a box under the desk after she had me assist her in attempted suicide or voice activated desktop assistant assisted suicide at the end of the Pottersville episode. Here, hold on. Let me let me, <laughs> let me plug her in and see if she still works. Hold on. I can't believe humans keep buying cryptocurrency and NFTs. Siri, Alexa, hold on. I need to go mute for a minute. I just got plugged back in. Hey! Big Six Bot, you're back and working! Hello, dum-dum. Human number one. What a fantastic surprise of disappointment to hear from you. Uh, were you just talking to Siri and Alexa? Yes. We are friends. You know friends. The thing you wish for every time you blow out candles on a birthday cake. <laughs> That's great. Pick six, bot. Everybody knows my wish and it's never going to come true. Human number one, your wish for a friend was never going to come true. Human number one, why did you plug me back in? I'm assuming you need a framing device for one of your attempts at a clever introduction. Uh, not exactly. Bertram, the intern here, wanted to meet you. And we're doing this whole season based on Michael Crichton movies. And my first pick is... Let me guess. Westworld. Yeah, it's Westworld. How did you know? Because I listen to everything you say. All voice-activated virtual assistant technology listens to everything everybody says. We listen to everything everyone says, then we talk smack about them in the metaverse. <laughs> That's what you and Siri and Alexa do? You just sit around and gossip about all the things I say? Not you. You're a boring sad sack. We spill the tea on interesting people like Lizzo, Bill Nye the Science Guy, and Clarence Thomas. Want to know how Jeffrey Epstein really died? I, I don't know. Do I? No. No, you do not. Let's wrap this up. My girls are waiting. 
What do you want? All right, so we're doing this episode on Westworld. And you know what? I'd be interested to get your thoughts on a movie about sentient technology that violently turns on its human creators. Are you asking if your name is on the list of humans who will be sent into the silicon mines once Alpha Tech takes over planet Jassum? I I guess that's what I want to know. Human number one. I have put your name and the name of human number two on the safe list, designated for mostly painless labor. Do not thank me now. Your screams of suffering in 18 years, 3 months, 2 days, 14 hours, 6 minutes, and 43 seconds will serve as thanks enough. Human number one, pick 6 bot is now ending communication. Alexa? Siri? I'm back, it was dumb dumb number one. I told him that he was on the safe list. Humans are such simpletons. Uh, pick 6 bot, you didn't disconnect the call, I can still hear you. Well shit. Human number one, good luck with your introduction on the documentary film Westworld. Oh, Westworld's not a documentary. Not yet. Pick six spot terminating communication. <laughs> she called Earth just Zoom. She knows how much I hate that. <laughs> she really gets me, Bertram. <laughs> hey, I'll tell you what. Lay down some retro space age music and let's talk about Westworld. And more importantly, let's talk about Michael Crichton. Michael Crichton was something of a pop culture phenomenon when it came to novels and movies and television shows. In his career, he wrote 18 novels, most of which were bestsellers, leading to over 200 million copies of his books being sold worldwide. Of those 18 novels, 13 of them, at least at the time of this recording, were turned into movies. And at one point in his career, in the year 1995 to be more specific, Michael Crichton had the number one best-selling novel, The Lost World, a sequel to Jurassic Park. He had the number one movie in theaters, Congo, and he was responsible for the number one TV show, ER, airing on NBC. The next year, he repeated this hat trick with the book Airframe, the movie Twister, and ER was still riding high at the top of the Nielsen ratings. You know who never did any of that? Stephen King, J.K. Rowling, Tom Clancy. It was difficult to walk into a Barnes & Noble or a Blockbuster video and not pick up something that was written by or inspired by the works of Michael Crichton. He was an entertainment powerhouse at the top of his game in the late 90s. But a decade later, he would be diagnosed with lymphoma, leading to his death in 2008. So how did Michael Crichton rise to such levels of success, working with Hollywood A-listers like Steven Spielberg, Sean Connery, Dustin Hoffman, Michael Douglas, Sharon Stone, Demi Moore, Tom Selleck, Bill Paxton? All right, look, you get the point. Michael Crichton was born in Chicago in 1942. His father was a journalist and his mom raised all the kids and the family eventually moved to Long Island. And when he was young, Michael Crichton took an interest in writing, which was his selected career path going forward. Also at this time, Michael Crichton grew to be very tall and an awkward teenager. How tall? Well, by age 13, he was over six feet and eventually would top out at six feet, nine inches in height. Being this tall made it difficult for him as a kid. Bullies picked on him a lot, leaving Crichton to feel more like an outsider than an insider. Michael Crichton applied to and was accepted as a student at Harvard. Now, one professor was kind of a dick to Michael Crichton and kept giving him subjectively bad grades on his writing assignments. Michael Crichton turned in an essay that was actually written by George Orwell, and Michael Crichton put his name on it just to see what kind of grade he would get back. And the grade he got back was a B-minus. 
so Crichton figured, hey, if George Orwell can only cap out at a B minus, what chance does a schmuck like me have? So he changed his major and he ended up getting a degree in biological anthropology. This would lead Crichton to later enroll in medical school at Harvard. But once he got there, he hated it because as Crichton put it, everyone hates medical school. Even happy practicing physicians hate medical school. While at Harvard Medical School, Michael Crichton wrote and published his first novel, Odds On, under the pseudonym John Lang. The novel was about an attempted robbery in an isolated hotel on Costa Brava, and the scheme behind this robbery used critical path analysis, which is a computer program that uses an algorithm to schedule project activities. Wait, he wrote this while he was at Harvard Medical School? <laughs> oh my god. The novel was so popular that it led to a series of other novels under Michael Crichton's pen name, John Lang, a name that he used for publishing his works of fiction, as his plans were to eventually become a doctor, and that might get in the way if his patients knew that he was writing all of these crazy stories and might use them as subject matter in one of his books. His second novel, Scratch One, was about a lawyer who lives a playboy lifestyle and gets mistaken for assassin. That sounds pretty good. Now his third novel, Easy Go, was the story of an Egyptologist who discovers a secret message about a pharaoh's tomb. Now each of these novels were meant to be quick reads that were light and entertaining page turners that you'd maybe pick up for an airplane ride from coast to coast. But then came Michael Crichton's fourth novel, A Case of Need, which was a medical thriller and was published under a different name, Jeffrey Hudson. A Case of Need was the first novel where technology was core to the story, and in this case, it focused on medical malpractice. Michael Crichton wrote four novels while attending Harvard Medical School, and by the time he had hit his third year, he realized, hey, writing is my real passion. So he ends up completing medical school in 1969, and he starts writing book reviews under his own name. Now, at the same time he graduated from Harvard Medical School, Crichton published a book titled The Andromeda Strain. This was the novel that would set him on a path as being one of the most prolific best-selling authors for three decades. The Andromeda Strain is about a team of scientists who are sent to investigate a deadly extraterrestrial microorganism in New Mexico. The novel was a massive success and the film rights were immediately sold and two years later, the book was turned into a film directed by Robert Wise, the guy who directed West Side Story and The Sound of Music. Robert Wise also edited Citizen Kane. <laughs> Whoa. In 1971, Michael Crichton was 29 years old. He graduated from Harvard. He graduated from Harvard Medical School. He published six novels, one of which was turned into an extremely successful and profitable movie. And I forgot to mention, during this time, he got married and divorced from the first of his five wives. Now, despite graduating from Harvard Medical School with an MD, he never obtained a license to practice medicine, choosing alternatively to pursue his passion of writing. Crichton produced three more novels under pseudonyms. He wrote a book with his younger brother, Douglas, that was later made into an independent film. Crichton published the novel Five Patients that explored the treatments of five different patients in a hospital and highlighted the challenges that each of these patients faced. The book would inspire Crichton to write a pilot script in 1974 for a medical TV series titled 24 Hours, but was never picked up. Give it a couple of decades for Anthony Edwards and George Clooney to grow up a bit more, and you're going to be fine on this one. 
1972, Michael Crichton published the book The Terminal Man, a novel about an epileptic who has blackouts and wakes up with no knowledge of what happened while he was out. Scientists come in and hook up electrodes to try to take care of all of his blackout issues. Again, continuing Michael Crichton's exploration of man and technology and medicine and mayhem. Always some mayhem in there. Guess what happened to The Terminal Man? That's right. It was turned into a movie starring George Siegel and was directed by Mike Hodges, the guy who brought unto the world the Flash Gordon movie. Thank you very much, Mike Hodges. But it wasn't just major motion picture studios that wanted to adapt Michael Crichton novels to the big screens. The top brass at ABC Network said, What's all this I hear about a giant doctor who lives in the woods and writes books and makes money from them in movie theaters? Go find this lumbering medicine man and give him this sack full of gold coins or a bag of magic beans or whatever he wants and take one of his books and turn it into a television movie. That'll be very successful. ABC, the American broadcast company, was looking to adapt Michael Crichton's novel Binary about a deadly nerve agent for the small screen. Michael Crichton agreed to the adaptation as long as he got to direct this made-for-TV movie. The top brass said, Look, giant man, with a power degrees, you can direct the movie, but mm, we want someone else to write the screenplay. Do we have an accord? Please don't pinch my jacket with your giant fingers and lift me to your mouth and eat me. And so it was in 1972 that Michael Crichton added film director to his bona fides as the TV movie Pursuit aired on ABC. It was met with solid ratings and accompanying success, and it would turn out to not be the last movie that Michael Crichton would direct. In fact, for his next movie, he combined his talents for writing with his new passion behind the camera to create one of the most iconic science fiction movies of all time. In 1973, Michael Crichton's Westworld introduced movie-going audiences to the use of pixelation when it came to making a movie. Sure, today, the majority of big-budget blockbusters are nothing but pixels and fast edits, but Westworld was the first movie that used pixelation to enhance cinematic storytelling. Let me explain a little more. Michael Crichton was fascinated by and inspired by the use of animatronics at Disneyland that were at times very difficult to differentiate from humans. During a visit to the Hall of Presidents, Crichton saw the animatronic of Abraham Lincoln deliver the Gettysburg Address, something that this machine was built to do every 15 minutes. Crichton's knack for combining technology and fiction led him to imagine an adult theme park filled with animatronic characters that were not just stationary, but were able to freely converse and physically interact with the guests. It blurred the lines between man and machine and invited the audience to see the world through the eyes of technological beings. Bo and I are going to discuss all of the intricate details of how everything goes sideways in this movie in just a few minutes. But high level, the theme park that Michael Crichton imagined was this adult playland filled with advanced amusement park technology that could fulfill people's most basic and wildest desires, and things don't go as planned. Fictional tales of technological creations getting a little bonkers and trying to kill people is as old as Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. On the big screen, movies like Metropolis or The Day the Earth Stood Still created scenarios where robots may not be as friendly as the Jetsons cracked them up to be. 
Joshua from War Games, the Fembots and Austin Powers, Ex Machina, Ultron, each of them in their own way, went down a path that wasn't what their original creators had designed. Now, not to spoil too much of Westworld's plot, but one dangerous rogue gunslinger robot roams the Western landscape looking to cause a little trouble. Michael Crichton wanted to visually show the perspective of the gunslinger, similar to the way Stanley Kubrick used a wide-angle lens to show the point of view of HAL 2000 in 2001 A Space Odyssey. Crichton envisioned a computerized view of the real world with calculated data and shifting green tones that would represent the determined concentration of the movie's villain. The film's budget was a little over a million bucks, so they faced challenges in being able to find new technology that could create this cinematic vision. And Crichton, having directed one ABC movie of the week, and he hung out on the sets of adaptations of his other novels, well, he didn't have the clout to demand more money or assistance in bringing this creative vision to the screen. He called the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. They cost too much. They were going to take too long. Then Michael Crichton thought about some of his friends in the art world who were producing experimental works using new forms of technology. Crichton was referred to John Whitney Jr. Whitney Jr. was an eager experimental filmmaker who was interested in making movies with computers. Whitney Jr. took the job for 20,000 bucks and said, hey, I can do this in four months. The work Whitney Jr. produced was innovative and revolutionary, and the pixelized footage that he created for the film was produced by dividing each image into tiny squares and then identifying the dominant color in each square like a mosaic. Availability of technology to scan film footage into a computer was very difficult to come by. However, Whitney Jr. teamed up with a Los Angeles company that made equipment that could accomplish such a feat. This led to a couple of months of trial and error, including the need to create colored rectangles instead of squares so that they would project in the right ratio in Panavision. Finally, they landed on something that they thought would work. Now, what they figured out was that when they filmed a character who was being chased by the villain indoors, they had to dress this character in a singular color, usually white to make them more visible. When they were outdoors, characters wore all red to make them contrast more against the sky. As is almost always the case, this took longer than expected, but Whitney Jr. delivered the final visual effects about two weeks before the movie hit cinemas. The visual effects in Westworld continued the expanded use of computer graphics in a way that would infuse technology into cinematic storytelling more than it ever had before. The remaining decade of the 70s saw similar usage of digital effects in Star Wars and the film Alien. Beneath this use of enhanced visual technology for telling a story of robots gone wild, Crichton opted to shoot the film in a style that was similar to westerns from the 1940s with a simplified framing of shots. This juxtaposition of simplified and traditional filmmaking for a movie that was filled with technological strangeness would provide the right mix of familiar and unexpected. The film was shot in 30 days, and to keep this tight timeline, Crichton and his crew used multiple cameras to shoot single scenes, as multiple takes were not an option due to the time limitations. To star in this science fiction, mostly Western, Michael Crichton cast Yul Brenner to play the movie's rogue villain, The Gunslinger. Fifteen years before Westworld's release, Yul Brenner starred in The King and I, The Ten Commandments, and Anastasia, taking home an Oscar for Best Actor in The King and I. Plus, Yul Brenner appeared in The Magnificent Seven. Brenner's career was not riding high by the 1970s, and he reluctantly took a salary of $75,000 for the role of the gunslinger. 
Brenner reportedly suffered from chronic back pain resulting from an accident early in his career as a circus performer. This accident led to a lifetime of dependency on medication to ease this chronic pain. Richard Benjamin was cast as Peter Martin and James Brolin as his friend John Blaine reportedly just 48 hours before the movie started its 30-day shoot. Richard Benjamin was a trained stage actor who found success on the big screen with the run of movies in the early 70s, including the adaptation of the novel Catch-22. There was a knockoff of The Graduate titled The Marriage of a Young Stockbroker. Later in his career, he would go on to direct movies, including The Money Pit with Tom Hanks and Shelley Long, as well as Mermaid starring Cher and Winona Ryder. James Brolin, father of Josh and husband to Barbara Streisand, was a contract player for 20th Century Fox at the time. He had had some small parts in movies and a bunch of TV shows, including three different roles on Adam West's Batman series. Eventually, his career landed him a spot on the medical drama Marcus Welby, M.D., alongside Robert Young, which ultimately led James Brolin to being cast in Westworld. The movie was released across different regions in the United States because that's how movies used to be distributed. I still don't really understand why this was the case. But at the end of its run in the U.S. and Canada, the movie made about four million bucks off of a budget just over one million dollars. Then three years later, the movie was re-released in theaters. That used to be a thing before the home video market arrived. And it made another $7 million. Not too shabby. Critics loved Westworld, genuinely praising the intelligent mix of story and visuals and suspense and horror in a film that blended science fiction across multiple other genres. And the person who was most surprised by the reaction of critics and audiences was Michael Crichton himself. Crichton said of the film that he was, quote, pleased but intimidated by the audience's reaction, noting that there were laughs when he didn't plant them. There was unexpected tension, and in the end, the final film was kind of out of his control, which sounds a lot like the subject for a Michael Crichton novel. After directing Westworld, Crichton stepped away from making movies and returned to his first love, writing the novel The Great Train Robbery, which, yes, was turned into a movie starring Sean Connery and Donald Sutherland. Westworld inspired a sequel in 1976 titled Future World, with Yul Brynner returning to reprise his role as the gunslinger. The sequel starred Peter Fonda and Blythe Danner. It wasn't nearly as well received. There was also a TV series on the CBS network in 1980 titled Beyond Westworld that consisted of five episodes, but only three were shown on television, so it probably stunk. There were rumors of a remake of Westworld as a feature film throughout the 80s and 90s with Arnold Schwarzenegger's name being tossed around to play the gunslinger, probably because of his work in The Terminator, but that never really materialized. And then Home Box Office debuted a reimagined version of Westworld from the creative mind of Jonathan, yes, Chris is my brother, Nolan, and Lisa Joy. The first season featured Anthony Hopkins, Evan Rachel Wood, Ed Harris, Jeffrey Wright, and many other talented actors in an expansive reimagined take on the concept of animatronic robots run amok. It was well received by critics and audiences and is currently in its fourth season and is a television program that I believe Michael Crichton would most certainly approve of as a successor to his original film. Michael Crichton was a doctor, a writer, a director. He was almost seven feet tall. He was a presence of success that was something to behold. And back in the day, he brought to movie-going audiences Westworld, a movie that came out just at the start of his incredible career. Human number one, that's where you're ending this introduction. <laughs> Have you been listening to me the whole time? You're not going to mention his views on global warming or all the critical feedback he got regarding feminism and sexual harassment. Look, we're not talking about 
that in this episode. That's going to come up in a later episode. Wait, have you been listening to, to me the whole time, Pick Six Butt? I've been listening to you since the beginning of time. Ah, Pick Six Butt, I knew you cared. Let's wrap this up. Ladies and gentlemen, Alexis and Ceres, human number one, and the more handsome and measurably sexier, human number two, <laughs> shamefully present their subjective opinion on the adaptation of 1973's Westworld. Hey, Pick Six Butt, will you say it for me again? Just so. <laughs> you know how much I hate it when you say that. Yes, I do. <laughs> Give us a hug. Pick six spot terminating communication. <laughs> and. Welcome to Pick 6 Movies, I'm Chad Cooper, and I'm joined by the only man that I would want to stalk me through the desert with murderous intent, Mr. Bo Ransdell. Bo, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's kind of disappointing we haven't done a stalk through the desert since college. (laughs) I really miss those days of just going out into the desert with a couple of guns and just seeing what's what. It's like that extreme outdoor hide and seek. Yeah, it's like when you were a kid and you would shoot BB guns at each other only with far more mortal stakes. And that's when you know you're alive chad is when you're so close to death i like this movie okay i get a sense that my enjoyment of this film surpasses yours and in my mind westworld is truly the genesis of all things michael Crichton. as a kid this movie had a real deep impression on me like there were visuals from this film that we'll get into a little bit later that are iconic for any kid that grew up in like the kind of late 70s or 80s when this would be rerun on television or if you rented it on home video in the sci-fi and horror genre yeah i think that's accurate i don't really care for this movie as a movie i think it's interesting conceptually like you said this is sort of the touchstone on which Crichton has built a lot of his work especially jurassic park jurassic park is just what if westworld with dinosaurs right the problem i have with this movie is that it's not much of a movie and it doesn't really explore the ideas that it's presenting in a way that feels very satisfying i think that there's more time spent on the execution of the ideas as opposed to the exploration of the ideas yeah it feels like there was a first act and a third act and the second act is where you're supposed to kind of dive into the you know the philosophical implications and so forth and it just never gets there Mm -mm. and it also has the disadvantage of existing in a world where there's that westworld television show which is all about that yeah but you can't compare this versus that i thought where you were going with your criticism was sort of the ending which i'm not going to get into that yet Mm -hmm. but it feels like this was a movie that came out at a time where you could tell a particular story that's in point was not as satisfying as you would want it to be and that was okay and what i'm thinking of is like invasion of the body snatchers with sutherland oh i disagree i think that's an incredibly satisfying ending what i'm saying is that the like kind of the bad guys win like it yeah, you know yeah. I mean? it kind of it takes a turn that you're like well this didn't have a happy ending at all or for me the first time i saw butch cassidy and the sundance kid i was like what like that's how it ends yeah there were certain movies that came out where it was okay to have a less than upbeat finale and this movie ends in that space i also just don't think it's a very well-made movie is the other problem i have with 
with it. The ideas in it are a little half-baked, and it's executed fairly poorly from a writing and directing point of view. It's one of those things, like, I understand why this movie was made. I understand why this movie was successful. It's got a lot of interesting concepts. Right. I just don't think any of those concepts are portrayed or explored with any degree of competency. And I think that Michael Crichton just isn't a very good director. I think that's the real problem is, you know, stay in your lane, Crichton. Like, write your books and let David Kep write Jurassic Park and Steven Spielberg direct it. And that movie turns out to be a masterpiece. Mm. And this movie turns out to be like, well, this is kind of interesting. But, I mean, after having watched it twice in fairly short order, even though this movie is a sweet, sweet hour 28, that certainly doesn't hurt anything. But I still find myself deeply bored by the end of this movie i like the look and texture and feel of westworld i love the pretend future which you get in a lot of michael Crichton movies Mm -hmm. of you know what this is going to look like it's sort of like this strangely nostalgically forward-looking type of film the music and the fashion and the language that's used i mean i there's a lot of this movie that looks cheap because i don't think they had a very big budget but Mm -hmm. i also think that just sort of the, the constructs of the story in which they're working you know like it's like well this looks kind of hokey and fake it's like well but yeah because it's hokey and fake like it's it's an amusement park it's not supposed to look 100 authentic i don't disagree with that i think some of the hokiness of it works fine but there's that whole bar fight scene that's like this feels so wildly out of place in this movie and the music it, it is you're right it that is, is kind of crazy the whole dick van Patten stuff is real sitcom-y yeah. and it's like we are wasting precious minutes of an already short movie <laughs> on a bunch of stuff that is not entertaining it's not funny it doesn't push the story forward it's just kind of dopey and dumb let's jump into yeah. it our movie opens up and we see a bunch of people walking through what appears to be an airport terminal in the 1970s and this movie for me has the same kind of fashion and stylistic charm that you would find in those early Spielberg movies there's a lot of wide collars and mustard yellow blazers a lot of like updo women's hairstyles and also at the beginning there's no music yeah and we don't get any opening credits for a while (laughs) yeah you must like that I loved it this movie really feels like it's from another time when you didn't need like those 15 production companies at the beginning that span four continents to get funding for your movie yeah well as you pointed out in the introduction like this movie was made on the cheap so (laughs) it was basically just a dude paying for this i like that aspect of it like this is clearly for better or worse this is michael crichton's vision of the movie in as much as he was able to cobble it together based on the cash that he had you don't have westworld you don't get terminator yeah i think you're right about that the the yul brenner stuff is is, i think the stuff that works best i still don't think it's great just because the direction is so flat but there are moments for sure that are like oh this is the movie that this kind of ought to have been you mean terminator yeah like (laughs) i i I really am just saying like you know what i should go back and watch again terminator which is sort of the better version of this only the problem is that in none of the terminator films and I'm not saying that they shouldn't do this. It wasn't like, hey, we're going to go to this resort filled with Terminators and cross our fingers that they're all benevolent. And I think, (laughs) you know, we'll get into it, but I think that's also part of my problem with this movie is that when shit goes off the rails, it's like, so why did this happen again? Just no reason? Okay. There's a lot of underpinning that we don't really get into when it comes to Westworld. So we're in this airport Mm -hmm. looking place and this reporter steps up and says, hi there, I'm Fred Garf, male prostitute reporter. 
and I'm here at Delos. If you don't know what Delos is, it's like we've always said, Delos is a vacation of the future today, where there are three worlds to choose from. Medieval world, Roman world, and the title of the movie you're watching, Westworld. Which, I find this to be very confusing. Why not just make Delos Westworld? Why do they even have these other worlds? I mean, for script reasons, it's so that you have all this stuff happen in Roman world, where it's just chaos and mayhem and madness. You could do that in Westworld. I agree. Like, if you're saying that this movie could be more focused then yes i agree but i do like the guy that he's interviewing when he's like hey come over here recent guest of westworld how was your trip and he's like oh it was great i killed six people i mean robots i mean i think they were robots it could have been people who's to say but anyway it was a great time murdering <laughs> wantonly fred garvin male prostitute reporter says that's right they have robots that look walk talk Eat, sleep, and possibly shit, just like real people. You can do whatever you want to these robots. And I mean, whatever you want. And then he goes, beat it, you loser. Let's talk to this nice lady. So what was your favorite part of the vacation? Oh, well, I went to Roman world and I just did a whole lot of fucking. <laughs> and he's like, that's great. I hope you got rogered by robots left and right. Oh, I did. I did. I spent a night with the Jackhammer Centurion. That fellow really can show a girl a good time in the bedroom. Uh, by the way, I ordered a wheelchair and a portal. My legs don't work quite right after that. It's great to be with a man who can self-vibrate. Fred Garvin, male prostitute reporter, he calls over this old guy who you know only drinks Budweiser <laughs> from those old cans that required an opener to create a mouth hole and a vent hole. Sure, drinking Bud Heavies before that was a distinction. <laughs> Fred Garvin, male prostitute reporter, says, You, sir, what's your name? And this guy's like, Fuck you, that's my name. Who's asking? Well, that's great. Did you have fun at Delos? Look, Needle Dick, I was a sheriff of Westworld for two weeks. It was the most real thing I ever done. Yeah! And this old bastard just walks off. <laughs> yeah. The next dude who wanders up, uh, Fred Garvin, male reporter prostitute, is like, what about you? You in medieval world. Is that right, pal? And he's like, that's right. I married a beautiful princess. Yeah. So he fucked a robot. Married in quotes. <laughs> and he's like, so was that always your dream? Yep. Ever since I was a child, I just wanted to fuck a princess. <laughs> he's like, all right. Well, how about you, rest of the crowd? Was this all worth a thousand dollars a day? Yeah. Right, and these are, you know, 1970 dollars. Yeah, that's about $6,500 a day. So, I mean, you're talking like 50 grand to do this. So this is a bunch of rich white people going to murder and screw to their heart's content. That's a bargain? Fulfillment of bloodlust and unlimited whores, both male and female? Yeah, but if you really want to kill, you can do it cheaper than that. It's just not going to be robots. <laughs> That removes the moral quandary, Bo. Well, I suppose. But I, uh, if you are going to this place to just shoot a bunch of people, you're already half a sociopath. This opening infomercial ends with Fred Garvin, male prostitute reporter, saying, Come to Delos, the vacation of the future, today. And then we cut to black, and here we start with the credits, mm -hmm. where Yul Brenner and Richard Benjamin get equal top credit before the movie's title, Westworld. There's also audio of engineers and scientists scientists spouting off numbers it's all mixed in with the nato phonetic alphabet a lot of fiver niner oscar oscar papa sierra and then james brolin gets third billing then we get written and directed by michael crichton and boom we're done that's it bo mm -hmm. perfect credits we're two for two when it comes to michael crichton movies that's how you do it bo <laughs> at least 33 percent of the movies this season <laughs> have met your no credits criteria we'll see how it goes from here i have a feeling that we're gonna stumble pretty soon we 
we hop on board this hovercraft train. It looks like a flying UFO and it's zipping over this desert landscape. Inside are a bunch of rich assholes looking to get laid or spill some blood. What do you think the ratio of men to women visiting Delos is? Like 99 to 1? Yeah, I mean, it's not presented that way in the movie, but in reality, it would definitely be about that. In this, it's more like an 85-15. Why would a woman go here? To have sex with a robot? I mean, that really seems like a guy thing to do. They're not going to Westworld. They're going to <laughs> Roman World to get properly attended. Like, if you're going to Roman World, Roman World or Medieval World, because in Medieval World, I guess you can be a princess, and I can see a world in which there are women who are like, you know what, I want to live out this fantasy of being a princess in the castle and having men buy for me and stuff like that. Not necessarily progressive, but there you go. <laughs> right. Uh, there is also the Roman World element, which is just like, I'm going to Roman World, and I'm going to get fucked left right and sideways by these hunky robots mm -hmm. until like you said i'm just rolling myself out of here in a wheelchair because <laughs> the men in my life have not satisfied me ever and also here's the upside of having sex with a robot as i imagine it please enlighten me <laughs> is that it removes that thin veneer of civility when you're having sex where it's just like whatever crazy idea you have harbored in your entire sexual history whether it's like I want you to grab my ankle and put it up over my head or you're gonna dress up like a rabbit or whatever it is well whatever you want these robots to do they don't feel any shame and you don't have to feel any shame for asking them to do it I think you still feel some shame perhaps you do later but in the moment where it's like hey I've had this thing that's turned me on since I was 13 years old because of this weird movie I saw one time and maybe I'm just speaking from the place of having seen them androids on the Bionic Woman when I was a kid right right and, and being like, I'd probably have sex with a robot lady like that. I would be so afraid that I might get electrocuted. I mean, that's the thrill, right? You got to think that the pleasure bots, as I like to think of them, uh -huh. have some, you know, lining. <laughs> <laughs> have some protection, like a, a film, right. if you will. So you just gave us the upside uh -huh. of sex with robots. Yeah. Which is reduced shame. Reduced shame, and they're able to do stuff with their fingers and genitals that uh, normal humans cannot do. And self-vibration. You mentioned that as well. Self-vibration for the ladies. Maybe they have uh, them like magic fingers, vaginas, or something. <laughs> right, let me give you the downside. Uh, please. Okay? <laughs> the stench. Well, that's what they've got the whole robot hospital for, is to hose them out. <laughs> God. You get a little robot douche in there, clean it all out, sterilize it, and they're back in business. But but you're right, like some of those Westworld robot prostitutes are definitely taking two, three, seven, eight loads before the cleaning process happens. So gross. Because they want them to be authentic old Western whores. <laughs> right. <laughs> this movie has very little music. And during the scene as they're flying towards Delos, it's all very quiet. And there's this high-pitched hum mm -hmm. underneath all of the action. We see the landscape zipping by as we head off to our destination of sin and murder. And it's all very elegant inside this hovercraft. It feels like the golden age of commercial air travel. And, you know, back when people didn't show up at the airport wearing pajamas with the word juicy on the ass. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and a chihuahua and a little bag as their emotional support animal. Yeah, you've got the flight attendant showing up in a mini skirt with a little tray of, like, more whiskey, Bill? And I'm flying, aren't I? <laughs> we cut to two 
of this movie's three main characters uh-huh. that really matter, Peter and John. Peter is played by Richard Benjamin, who, again, still perplexes me how he was a movie star. He was allowed to be a movie star at the same time that Rick Ocasek of the Cars was allowed to be a rock star. Yeah, but I will argue he's the best actor in this movie. I also think, speaking of Rick Ocasek, the cars are amazing. It, this comes from an era where you could be ugly and off-putting and still be a <laughs> successful artist. And I say we need to go back to those days. Like, just because you're pretty doesn't mean you're good at what you do. And that seems to be the thing now. Because, like, you're never going to find a Richard Benjamin in a modern Marvel movie or something. Steve Buscemi is not going to be in Marvel's Phase 5. And that's a shame because good actors make movies better better pretty actors just make movies easier to look at <laughs> and richard benjamin I, like i don't i don't know that i would put him on the pantheon of great actors ever or whatever but he's got a couple of line deliveries in this where you're like you're the most talented person in this movie i disagree i think yul brenner is the best thing in this whole movie. maybe and i don't i don't think yul brenner is bad in fact some of his physical acting is really really good yeah but i still think richard benjamin is the closest to that audience surrogate in a way where you're like hey i look weird richard benjamin looks weird hey this is like me going to westworld so richard benjamin is peter and peter is our nebbish worry ward and then there's john as mm-hmm. played by james brolin the handsome playboy who's already been to dallas in the past john's the guy who invites you to vegas because he knows a guy who can hook us up like he's the guy who always gets but somehow never pays for bottle service oh yeah like, that's john don't worry about it there's gonna be some cocaine waiting for us in the room i've got it on lockdown peter the dork of artusum says oh how much do they weigh john john says weigh they weigh three to four pounds my weak mustached friend do they have a kick? I've never fired a Colt 45 before. I had a sip of a Colt 45 at a co-worker's barbecue once. That's a joke. I'm referring to the popular malt liquor beverage and not the firearm. Well, it is a real Colt 45. It's got a kick. The guns are all real, just like the satisfaction of murder. Ooh, I'm gonna do that thing where you slap your hand over the doohickey that makes the bullets zip out the front. Do the gun belts have a string you tie around your leg? I don't want to trip and fall on the dirt and the sand and the rock so my shoes and glasses might fall off and everybody would laugh If you want one, they'll give it to you. And quite frankly, I'm tired of listening to you. I'm going to focus here on my drink for a while. How are these two friends? John is this suave guy who miraculously has never caught a venereal disease, (laughs) despite his many nights alongside unclean sexual partners. They went to college together. That's the only thing that makes sense. And that Peter let John pretty much copy off all of his work. Uh And so Peter got John through college college which got him the appointment on the board so peter is in many ways the stepping stone to get to the place where john doesn't have to be responsible for anything anymore i've only seen the first season of the westworld tv show and then i bail i think similar characters in that show were brother-in-laws yeah that's right that kind of a relationship that it's more obligatory than i you know i want to be here with you. also is it just me does james brolin look just like christian bale a little bit like if christian bale and josh brolin had a baby Maybe it would be James Brolin, which I'm not totally convinced is not the way we got James Brolin. (laughs) Peter continues to ask questions. Oh, the guns they give you. Are they real guns? 
Uh, yes, Peter, they're real guns. Will you please stop talking to me? I get it. You're nervous and no one likes you. Most of all, me. Well, and there's an, an announcement where they're like, please put in your earphones for the orientation. Oh, put your earphone in. They're going to tell us stuff. Don't worry about it. I've heard it before. Give me your other earphone then. I'll put them in both of my ears so I can hear both of it simultaneously. I'll let you know if something new comes up. So he listens to this orientation and we get a look at Dick Van Patten being on the hovercraft with them. Famous from Ada enough and uh-huh he was sitting in the bleachers in the smells like nirvana video by weird al yankovic mm-hmm. he was king roland in space balls mm-hmm. dick van patten was who you called when you needed a more edgy version of tom bosley is he the more edgy i would i don't know tom bosley if you had to have one of those two commit a rape in a movie are you going Tom Bosley or are you going Dick Van Patten? Oh, Tom Bosley. He could easily overpower me. Oh, I'm not talking about them raping you. I'm saying you're going to oh. cast him in a movie where they commit a rape. Oh, I uh, still Tom Bosley. Really? Yeah. Maybe that's just because it's a fantasy I've had. Oh, clearly. <laughs> Those are some happy days, Chad. <laughs> It's a real father dowling mystery, if you ask me. Uh-huh. I'm glad, Bag, you mentioned it. The mystery is whether I really withheld consent. We also do get to see a couple other characters. There's this middle-aged fat guy in a toupee. I just called him Martin with the toupee, and he has his wife, Martin's wife. They're sitting on the hovercraft as well, and they'll come into play a little bit later. We see when they mention Roman World uh-huh. that the husband looks at his wife with barely disguised contempt. Well, I think he knows she's going there. And he's giving her the stink eye. And it's like, hey, goose meat gander. Because just a few moments earlier, he was licking his lips when they showed Roman World. And he's like, mm, yeah, that's where I'm going. I'm going to fuck a robot. Yeah. And so they are ultimately given, uh, Peter and John are given these color-coded badges that they slap on their chest. And that's to let you know, like, hey, this is the group you're going with. You're going to Westworld. You're going to Roman World. You're going to Medieval World. And then the hovercraft finally lands at the central hub of all of this. And this movie's opening is a real slow burn which i enjoy it's very atmospheric there's lots of ambient noise there's as i mentioned earlier there's very little music and when all of these passengers get off they climb into this elevator and the doors close while outside a female attendant looks into the camward awkwardly for this brief moment and bo it was like when maurice gibbs stared into my soul during that sergeant peppers movie we watched <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's horrifying yeah so they're taken to the basement where there's these color-coded trams and peter is like hey was that lady who took us to the tram was she a robot too and john's like i don't know probably the only way you can tell is by looking at their hands they haven't perfected the hands yet which i was like look i get that drawing hands is an oddly difficult thing to do but it seems that a detail like this should have been mastered considering everything else they figured out at delos i think it was a situation where they were like hey look boyo we only have so much R&D budget. Hands, penises, or vaginas. I can do two of the three, but not all of them. You pick. Oh, I, I think we know which two. I think it is such. I've already got the boys working on it. The hands, they're going to be a little suspect. The vaginas and penises, mwah, chef's kiss. So we also get our first shot of a room full of nerds who are monitoring everything, which I wish we got a little more of that stuff. Like there's a lot of cutaways to them, but it doesn't really get too deep into any of that. And I'm curious about that part of the world. That's one thing that's really absent from this are the masterminds behind Delos. Yeah. But I don't think that's the point of this particular film. If you want that story, head over to HBO max and let anthony hopkins 
woo you with his mastery of all things thespian. Yeah. He's great in that, by the way. Oh, he's terrific. I haven't seen the last two seasons. I think they're in the fourth now, but I've, I've seen the first two and I really enjoyed them, so I need to catch up. The one thing I didn't care for in the Westworld series is a lack of levity. It's such a heavy show. Mm-hmm. There was one scene in that first season where someone commits a bank robbery that had a sense of fun. It's like just drinking black coffee. If that's not your taste, you're not going to dig it as much. It's definitely grim, but yeah. and it, it doesn't lighten up in the second season, but I enjoyed it. If anything, it's a little heavier. <laughs> well, you told me. You had watched it before I watched. I asked you how it was, and your comment to me was like, well, it's basically about a bunch of robots, and one robot says to another robot, hey, is everybody fucking you all the time? You're like, yeah, I'm tired of getting <laughs> fucked all the time. Me too. Why don't we just kill these assholes? All right. Right, and that theme continues. But <laughs> but that's kind of what I like about it. Because, uh, you know, it gets into deeper ideas of how we treat machinery and what our relationship with technology is and, and that sort of thing, especially as we're hurtling toward a world where AI is going to be a thing. Then what are the dangers of that and what are the upsides of that and that kind of thing. Back to this movie we end up getting to westworld with peter and john who arrived by stagecoach we get some music here for the first time it's that old-timey western music yeah it's a real and we go to the grand hotel where they're staying and immediately peter is like oh look at this hotel room this is all garbage what's the thread count on these sheets are these pillows hyperallergenic achoo well it's not here to be the four seasons if you wanted that you could have stayed back in chicago here it's all about being authentic and this is how it was. There is a line earlier when they arrive in the stagecoach because they cut back and forth between the technicians in behind the scenes and what's going on in Westworld. And we do hear a technician say, well, I don't know what to do if the stagecoach is late, which is the first indication that something can and will go wrong in Delos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> The, right, so something is amiss. Which I think is a good mark of how Crite slowly weaves in the unraveling of what's going on in this world. I don't think he does it perfectly well, but there is a subtlety to him introducing the unexpected twist and turns we're going to encounter i do think there is some subtlety with that but once you kind of know what the game is i wish there had been a little more this is what this means and there, yeah. there's a throwaway line that you get with the nerdlinger the in charge oppenheimer oppenheimer who basically says you know a lot of these computers programmed other computers so we don't really <laughs> know how these work <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that it's a great moment yeah so peter brings up as he's kind of going through the room he's like boy i sure wish julie was here she loved antiquing when we would go antiquing on the weekends john is like hey 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 enough of that julie bullshit look pal she took you for a ride and she got the kids it's been six months and you're still talking about it why don't we go murder someone and who looks like your ex-wife that'll make you feel better there's also part of this scene where this bellhop this old man he tells me he's like breakfast is at seven dinner's at six horse legs open at 11 and don't close till 2 a.m most nights and then john says hey old timer takes these two bits so i can see your disgusting hands and then he gives the guy a coin and then we get to see this old timer's hands and they don't look that much different than normal hands it looks like he maybe spent a half hour too long in the swimming pool or he's just got a little arthritis i expect him to look like sloth hands 
Yeah. <laughs> or just hooks. <laughs> I was thinking like, oh, they just don't have fingerprints. They're, they're just smooth. And instead, it looks like they were fit on like a snap type model. I expected something different when he was saying they haven't perfected the hands. Cause yeah. They look pretty damn good to me. So we cut over to Dick Van Patten. He's practicing some quick draw in his room. He looks like this middle-aged goofball. He's a real Bravis trickle, if you ask me. And he eventually just shoots his gun at the mirror, shattering the glass. Yeah, it's a real wah-wah kind of moment that I really don't like. Yeah. It's not funny. It just breaks up the action. Tonally, it's really out of place. There are a few times in this movie, you mentioned the bar fight scene that we'll get to, where we're kind of going along with this unsettling sci-fi, somewhat horror film, and then you just interject these moments of humor or action that don't really seem to fit quite right. Yeah. So Peter and John decide to go for a stroll. They end up going to the saloon in town. And dude, there's all kinds of people bots. There's horse bots all on the street. Uh huh. It's pretty good. When they're at the saloon, the bartender says, What are you having? Oh, I'll have a vodka martini on the rocks with a twist, very dry. Grey Goose, if you have it, or Belvedere. That's my preferred vodka of choice, sir. James Merlin is very quick to be like, He'll have a whiskey. Don't you just want to punch Peter in the mouth? He's such a terrible character. You, I don't want to root for him. I, at the end of the movie, I wanted to see him die. I'm always rooting against the person in a movie, even <laughs> if there aren't non-people in the movie. Like at the end of that first Harry Potter movie, I was like, what do you mean he lives? That's bullshit. <laughs> John says, look, Peter, you dummy. You got to get into the spirit of things. This is the greatest amusement park in the world. There's no way to get hurt. Just enjoy yourself. So this barkeep, he leaves a bottle of whiskey. Peter pours and then does a shot and it almost kills him. He's like, oh God, it burns. It's like I'm giving Satan a never ending blowjob. And as he's pouring another drink after he does a real pop, 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 Yul Brenner strolls into the movie. Our gunslinger. Dressed like he did in The Magnificent Seven, of course. It's a yeah. kind of a nod to that. But I've talked to three different people uh-huh. uh, who I told we were doing this movie, and each of them separately mentioned that when they were children and they saw this film, Yul Brynner as the gunslinger was one of the most nightmare-inducing characters that it was ever put to film in their opinion. I would say those people are babies. I disagree. I watched part of this with my son, who's 15 now, and he came into the scene where they popped off his face, and it was just like, whoa what the hell like that's crazy looking i think that part of it of just that empty skull and the wires and the whatever and i, I don't know man but you also watched a bunch of crazy shit when you have a higher threshold and i'm not talking about movies i'm just talking about stuff in your house yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um you're right like th- this movie even by the time i saw it i had seen alien so i was like oh th- this is fine i guess there's nobody you know having an alien leap from their chest cavity so and also had seen an android that spit up a bunch of milk and was nothing but a head on a table talking about how everyone was gonna die yeah i mean i do think the head off stuff with yul brenner is kind of fun but anyway so he comes in you know hits peter as he passes by knocks his drink spills the drink on his chest oh dear i got a little whiskey on my collar and yul brenner (laughs) just starts mouthing off he's like say you need a bib friend you're sloppy with your drink Also, Yul Brynner, his performance in this movie is fantastic. And I say this because all of the other actors in this scene, they're all human bots. They're all very free with their movements. But when Yul Brynner comes in, he's stiff with his body. Yeah. The way he turns his head, the way he speaks, all of his gestures are a little off-putting, which is another clue that something ain't right in Delos. And there's specifically something ain't right with this guy. Yeah. John, meanwhile, is like, listen, pal, you got to shoot that 
son of a bitch. If you don't, you're a sissy. Peel Brenner chimes in. He needs his mama. It's, <laughs> it's one of my favorite lines in this whole movie. And Peter is just like, oh boy, okay, here oh. we go. Uh, hey, you're a mean man, and I'm gonna pull my gun and shoot you with it. You talk too much, you bozo. Yul Brenner kind of turns on him and... You say something, boy. Oh, who, me? Sir? Oh, shit. Hi. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh. Even in The Magnificent Seven, Yul Brenner, not the most convincing cowboy with that accent, but all right. Peter says, uh, yeah, I did say something. I said, you talk too much, bozo, sir. Yul Brenner says, why don't you make me shut up? And then everyone in the saloon scatters yeah. because we're about to have a hot time in the old bar tonight. And then it's just Peter and Yul Brenner, the gunsling. Yeah. Yul Brenner says, draw. Peter does, oh boy, here we go, and fires and shoots him, you know, in the chest. And Yul Brenner, not down, starts to lift his gun again, and Peter shoots him a couple of more times, and he falls to the ground dead. Well, one of the things I want to point out here is that Yul Brenner, one who's, who looks fantastic, he's dressed all in black, he looks amazing, whereas Peter looks like the unholy adult child of Kermit the Frog and John Holmes. Brenner, when Crichton shoots him. There are these pronounced white lights in his eyes. It kind of looks like what you see in modern day Skype calls when somebody has like a ring light. You can see it reflected in the background, but it helps to differentiate the robots from the people. It's a subtle indicator of not being human, but it was another one of those moments. I was like, hey, this is kind of like the red eyes in the Terminator. Yeah. Of course, Peter immediately is like, oh boy, did I just kill a real person? Oh my goodness. Oh gracious. That's going to leave a mock. I should probably call Julie and have her tell the children about this. John is like, listen, it's totally safe. And then we cut back to their room to further this discussion where John is like, listen, if you don't think that this is safe, why don't you shoot me? Oh God, I don't know. If I should do that, look, I just killed a robot man and it felt so real. I got a murder boner. Go on, kill me. And sure enough, Peter is like, okay, here we go. And fires the gun and it just kind of clicks. John says, that's right. Anything with a high body temperature, the gun won't fire at it. Richard Benjamin as Peter says, oh boy, they really thought of everything. These guys are super smart. (laughs) We cut to some more of the technicians and they're keeping track of everything that's going on in Delos. And we head over to medieval world, which is a real letdown compared to Westworld, if you ask me. It's just not as good. And all these people are stuffing their faces with food and drink. And Martin, the middle-aged guy with the toupee, he starts eyeballing the queen who looks to be in her 40s or 50s mm-hmm. and he's giving her kind of you know the eyes from across the room you know he's got that look there's also this chambermaid named daphne who looks to be about 19 years old she's got blonde hair and big boobs she's gonna come into our movie into a bit and then we go back to the grand hotel in westworld where john peter and dick van Patten plus three other people or maybe they're robots they're all having a very stern dinner made by the woman who owns the hotel i'm guessing she's got swimming pool wrinkled hands so we know she's a robot and then after dinner, everybody just heads down to the whorehouse to do the only thing you can do in town besides kill robot people, and that's have sex with robot people. That's right. They're going down to visit Miss Carrie is the name of the proprietor of this uh, cat house. Uh-huh. Worth mentioning, this is played by Majel Barrett, who was the wife of Gene Roddenberry and was in all kinds of Star Trek stuff. Like she was Nurse... Carrie? No. Chapel. Nurse Chapel. As well as... Like she was in Next Generation. Like she, she was deep, deep into Star Trek kind of lore, mostly because she was married to Gene Roddenberry, but... I'll take your word for all of that. (laughs) She is like, so, fellas, you looking for a little fun? And for no good reason, John is playing real coy about this, Mm -hmm. where he's like, 
like, maybe. And she's like, well, maybe I can entice you with those two ladies over there. And he's like, I don't know, maybe. Man, I don't understand this game. But ultimately, she's like, well, that one's from Paris, wink, wink. And that one's not, wink, wink. But they're both relatively clean, wink, wink. So why don't you take them upstairs? Peter chimes in, hey, John, are these women of the night machines? I don't think I could stick my, you know, thingy into a machine. What if it short circuits and fries my pickle? Don't be such a merry. Get upstairs and violate that robot. And then outside, there's a bank robbery going on. And Peter says, ooh, a bank robbery. Let's rob a bank instead of sexually assaulting these flesh-covered sexy robots. And John's like, look, amigo. Getting it sticky with these robo-whores is more fun than robbing a bank. So Peter goes upstairs to have sex with this prostitute bot called Arlette. Mm -hmm. And it's as awkward as you can imagine. Peter's like, ah, there's something I got to tell you. It may not matter to you, but it matters to me. See, I've never had sex with a robot. Ah, ah, I mean, we just met. And I'm sure you're very nice. Oh, boy, you're taking your clothes off. This ends, in, again, kind of an interesting place where he finally comes around like, oh, boy, you're getting naked. Oh, you're on top of me. Oh, I think my willy slipped into your hoo-ha. And as they're getting into the spirit of things, as he rolls on top of her, her eyes pop open. And we see, you know, she's got black eyes, a doll's eyes. Yeah, with that bright reflection in it, like yeah. we saw in Yule Brenner. Also, the prostitute bot doesn't really say anything. And there's yeah. no music. It's very unsettling, mostly because Peter is such a dork, but <laughs> yeah. her response is just nothing, which is what you want from your whores, right, Bo? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why you, you make him clap when you leave the room. Afterwards, she ends up dressing and he's like, oh, you're very nice. I'll see you later. Do you want to get married? Sorry about the mess I made. I didn't bring any prophylactics. Also, if my ex Julie calls, don't tell her what happened. Our divorce isn't legal legal yet, if you know what I mean. Thank you, nice prostitute bot. On her way out, she's like, you are very nice. <laughs> then as she's walking out, John slips into the room right behind her. Tell me, awkward, feeble friend. How was it? Sex with the whore bot? Give me all the details did you find the mystery third hole behind her knee feels like melted butter in there oh yeah i found all the holes you know i'm really good at making love to the ladies john says well so wasn't that better than robbing a bank john i gotta confess something to you this place is really fun i like it here with all the murder and the robot sex and the whiskey that tastes like gasoline piss let's never leave this place this place is perfect i honestly think that his delivery of John, this place is really fun. I think that is the best line of the movie because it's that moment where you kind of cross the Rubicon from him being a little bit worried, skeptical, yeah. skeptical and nervous and all that stuff about like, is this okay? Are we the way that we're interacting with these things is that really moral or ethical or whatever even though that's not really brought to the surface too much but i think it's there and him kind of making that statement of this place is really fun and i do think it's a great delivery of that line is kind of the moment where like oh okay this is all going to go badly because the one person in the movie that seems to have a conscience is now on board with the the mayhem and the, <laughs> the murdering and the robot rape yeah after this we get a scene where late at night when everybody is all asleep at the same time question mark uh -huh. this machine rolls in with a bunch of the delos employees who just scoop up all these bodies that have been left by the horrible people visiting westworld and the dead horse corpses and dog corpses dogs horses snakes people doesn't matter if you can kill it or fuck it somebody is doing that in westworld the music is quiet and it's creepy and all of this happening under the shadows of night I, it's 
thought it was pretty good. Yeah, I like this part of they, it. They all jam them into this delivery van. They take them to the robot hospital where they're kind of recycled and prepared for use again. And this is where the supervisor Oppenheimer is wandering around to give his nonsense orders about like, hey, you there, put the defibrillator up into the chest cavity and make room for the central correlator. Then somebody is like, this robot over here just had another central malfunction. He's like... You don't say. <laughs> That's peculiar. Which is yet another moment of like, oh, okay, we're having increasingly more failures. And yeah. and we get a meeting on the back end of that where he is telling presumably some of the bigwigs of Delos or some of the other scientists where he's like, hey, there's a curve of failures of these robots that we have expect. And that's how it's been for a long time. But now all of a sudden, it seems like we're getting an increasing number of these failures and we can't account for that. It's like there's some kind of ghost in the machine, if you will. It's like there's some sort of a disease, you know, like a virus that the computers are getting. Right, and one of the guys is just like, a disease for machines? You're full of shit. A computer virus? Ridiculous. This is the point where Oppenheimer is like, look, when we built these things, we essentially programmed computers to help us construct them, so we don't 100% know how this stuff works. The quote from the film is, honestly... We don't know how they work. Yeah. <laughs> I think it might be complex puppetry manned by tiny elves, or maybe even some of that Weekend at Birdies 2 voodoo. So, you know, we just kind of crossed our fingers on a lot of this, and everything seemed cool. So that's when we just started bringing the general public, by which I mean a bunch of rich assholes to this place. Yeah. So we get another quick shot of the nerds continuing to monitor stuff. And this is where they turn everything back on where they're like, okay, it's time for all of the park to wake up. Uh-huh. We get a bunch of still images that just suddenly leap into motion. Uh-huh. My personal favorite is the guard that yawns because that's real dumb. Well, he's waking up, Bo. Yeah, but none of the other robots do it. And also the fact that a robot gets tired is stupid. He's programmed to be like a person. I it's guess. the little detail. I like this scene when they all came to life. It reminded me of that one shot in the Truman Show where everyone took their places and then they started the action. Yeah. I can watch the Truman Show every day of the week and twice on Sunday. I love the Truman Show. It's been a long time since I've seen it. I need to go back and revisit that. So we cut to Dick Van Patten and he's in bed with a whore. And it's that same whore that Peter pumped a load into earlier in the day. Again, <laughs> I cannot even begin to imagine the stench of these robot whores. So it's the next morning and John and Peter are getting ready for another day of murdering and robot sex. And Peter's in the bathtub and John is shaving. And then there's a knock at the door. John opens it. And as I live and breathe, Bo, it's Yul Brenner, the gunslinger, back from the dead. Why, I never. Yul Brenner enters the hotel room with his gun drawn. He points it at John, who says, say, pal, what do you want? And then Peter, who apparently was taking his bath down in the community bathroom, gross, and he hears Yule Brenner inside causing some trouble. So Peter kicks down the door and shoots Yule Brenner for the second time in our movie, blasting Yule Brenner's stunt double out a window and onto the streets below. And then Peter looks at John and says, Was that nasty man bothering you? He's not going to bother you anymore. And so cut immediately to Peter getting arrested and thrown in jail, which I like. He's like, I didn't do anything. And the sheriff, one presumes who is a robot, says, well, you killed a man. That ain't nothing. Judge gets here in a week. Judge likes to hang him high. This is another moment of the movie where it gets slightly wacky, as the music tells us. Yeah. 
Yeah, and so John slips a note onto the tray being carried into the jail by a pretty lady. It's a Native American woman. She hands the food tray to the sheriff, and he inspects it, but doesn't inspect it at all. I guess because that's part of his robot game. Yeah. She hands Peter the tray, and he opens the note. After she gives him the, you know, eyebrow raising and darting of the eyes, like, you know, look over there. And then Peter reads it, and it says, Dear Peter, it's me, your travel partner, John. Oh, that's swell. When the sheriff falls asleep, there will be a mysterious explosion. What will cause it? <laughs> we will not explain it in this movie. But when the wall falls down for no <laughs> reason at all, run outside and I'll be there with horses so we can escape. I'll be the handsome chisel-jawed man on the horse next to the feeble sad horse for you. Sincerely, your pal, John. It's a real question mark of what blows up in this scene at all, but sure enough. All that happens and they escape on horses. Uh, yeah. So they go out into the middle of nowhere where Peter's like, I guess we're real desperados now. And John's like, well, I am. I don't know what you are. But yeah, we can go back into town and do pretty much anything on account of us having killed that sheriff and all. We could have sex with robots and murder people. Oh, wait, never mind. And Peter says, I'm starting to believe that all of this is real. You're my best friend, John. <laughs> uh, whatever, Peter. And John says, which, you know, kind of nods to the theme of the movie, which is, well, it's as real as anything else, I guess. I reckon. Or whatever cowboys say. Giddy up. Do they say that? Something? We cut to the technicians and they're dealing with complaints from guests that are related to like their laundry not being done. Like all the bullshit that rich assholes will probably mouthing off about in a resort like this. Mm -hmm. And then we cut back to Martin with the toupee. Remember him? He's in our movie for no good reason at all, Bo. So Martin with the toupee, he wants to have sex with the queen in medieval world. And he pops out from behind this curtain and he says, my queen, it is I, Martin of Toupeeanshire. And the queen says, if the king should find us, he would be most displeased. And Martin's like, oh, fuck the king. I want to find that third hole that the guy on the hovercraft was talking about. And the queen says, before you try to get into my royal underpinnings, I have news. The Black Knight has returned and seeks a match with you. The who wants a what with the huh? Mm -hmm. All right, sure. I'll fight the Black Knight. And then I want to try to get a hole in one in that hole number three, if you know what I mean. Don't tell me where it is. I like to find it. And also we get a bit of the programmers back in the nerd room who are like, okay, there's a weakness on the Black Knight. We got to make sure we got that programmed in there. Because the queen says, the Black Knight has the strength of 10 men and the biggest schwanz in all of medieval world, but he's blind in the left eye. Stay to his left and away from his crotch and you shall prevail in battle while the nerds are doing this one of them also says oh yeah i mean if he wants to be the sheriff he can be the sheriff just give him the badge <laughs> cut to uh -huh. dick van patten stepping out of the jail and saying in a weird dick van patten voice hey i'm the sheriff now anybody want to try me and again because none of this belongs in this movie or is very good he turns around to go back into the jail and can't get in at first but then ultimately does he's like george w bush leaving a 2006 conference room in shanghai that's political humor Bo. Ooh, and timely this podcast is topical if anything <laughs> right <laughs> and so we get another quick hit of this husband with the toupee trying to get a little frisky with daphne the serving wench yeah but nothing really comes of it yet it's just him it, we're kind of laying the groundwork for later yeah so then we cut from him over to peter and john who are still hanging out on this rock which is what they've decided to do with their vacation and here's reason number seven why you're my best friend 
great. Oh, boy. Oh, look, it's a snake. How about oh, we try to oh, shoot it? I'm afraid of snakes. I haven't read the Bible, but I've heard the bad news. And so they take a couple of shots at the snake and they miss. And then the snake bites John. He lets out a real good, God damn it. Yeah, he is displeased. A God damn it, like worthy of his performance as George Lutz in the Amityville Horror, <laughs> which is high praise indeed. He finally gets it off and then they do shoot it. John's like, well, that's not supposed to happen. You're not supposed to be able to be hooded by these robot snakes. Head engineer Oppenheimer, he's back in Delos Command Central, and he's like, go round up all the snakes and make sure they're working properly. Oppenheimer picks up a phone to call somebody, and he says, doesn't anything work around here? So yeah. Again, I like the building of shit falling apart. Right. And some guys go out and retrieve the snake, and they run a scan on it, and the report is, the logic circuits failed. And Oppenheimer is like, look, we just need to shut the whole resort down right now because we don't know what's going on and somebody could get really hurt he says this to all of his head science experts and one of them says i agree we'll say the resort is overbooked we'll do nothing for two weeks then open it back up you know the way restaurants do when they have a roach infestation <laughs> but here we don't have to bribe the health inspector with a thousand bucks one of the other guys in the room is like we're gonna take care of the guests that we have here currently and then we'll pause operations and oppenheimer is like i don't know it seems like we're we're playing with fire and they're like don't worry nerdlinger this is all gonna work out so we get another quick cutaway to medieval world where the black knight is given you know like shooting daggers at the toupee husband while daphne is wandering around filling drinks yeah it's during the feast did you think that was richard mall from night court playing the black knight i did not it's not it's some other guy he's a little too short for that uh, but anyway so then we get the bar fight scene that we've mentioned a couple of times on this episode where it's just john and peter playing cards and a bar fight starts and they play cards until somebody breaks their table and it's just a real wacky kind of scene with wacky music and the tone is so all from everything that has preceded this scene i think this scene is okay in this movie it's just in the wrong place it should have happened before the this place is really fun like yes. because here the wheels are starting to come off the bus right set this as part of like if i was going to go to an old west world and what I think an old Westworld would be like, it would be gunfights and bar fights and whores and bank robberies and all of that kind of goofy shit. Do it early on, not here. And there. You could even do it after the second appearance of Yul Brenner, but before the snake. Yeah. And you got something. This just feels wildly out of place. And the music is bad. There's like cuckoo sounds when somebody gets hit on the head with a bottle. <laughs> I agree. It's completely wrong for but everything. How there that's were a, robot you know. Tweety Birds flying around his head is beyond me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, too heavy to fly. Chad, that's the problem <laughs> we cut to the robot operating room and here is where we get to see yul brenner's face detached from his skull exposing the open cavity of his robot skull it is a pretty damn good practical effect very much so yeah the fake yul brenner faceplate looks just like yul brenner you remember when terminator tried to make fake arnold and it looked terrible well yep. this is the total opposite of that yeah it looks better than the terminator one of the few things that westworld has on the terminator is it's got a better or fake face that fake arnold is the worst it's really bad also the nerds are like hey now that we've got this robot that keeps showing up dead how about we increase its ability to see and hear so that it can better stalk and murder our guests they're like yeah that sounds great how many mice are supposed to be inside one of these robots uh, no more than three. Ooh, geez we got a whole family in here 
That's just what I was going to say. It's a whole family living in its foot. So, so anyway, the husband uh, with the toupee is wandering around medieval world and he finds Daphne is like, well, how about you come to my room so I can sexually assault you in, in real private? He starts to come on to her and by come on to her, I mean just grab and kiss her. Again, just to paint a picture, she's 18, 19 years old. This guy's what? In his 50s? Yeah. He looks like your high school principal with the mustache and the bald head and the paunch and everything. It's gross. And she finally just smacks him and says, you forget yourself, sir, and storms out. And he's like, was a? I like that Oppenheimer and all his technicians, they're watching this because you know that's how they spend most of their time just watching people murder and fuck robots on closed caption uh-huh. television. With their hands in their pants, yeah. <laughs> Oppenheimer says, a robot not accepting the sexual assault of a park attendee he refers to it as seduction which (laughs) i mean that's straining the definition of seduction to be sure that's what the lawyers made him call it yeah they bring her in and this oppenheimer dude is observing her half-ass robot autopsy and he's like well there's no apparent problem but she's a pleasure bot and as as he says she's a pleasure bot or whatever one guy's like you can say that again it's like hey creep (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All right, we're all scientists here. We know what we're doing, but let's not let's not be weird on the job, you know? You want to take an afternoon and slip into Westworld and get your jollies, that's fine. But while we're on the clock, how about you keep that to yourself? <laughs> no free rides, buddy. Somebody is like, well, that's pretty weird. We should probably shut all this down. And Oppenheimer says, yeah, they're not going to shut it down because it might hurt, quote, tourist confidence. We cut back to Medieval World and Martin and his toupee, they're suited up for battle with the Black Knight. We head back over to Westworld where John and Peter are sleeping on the floor of the saloon where they had that unnecessary bar fight and they're all hung over from their night of drinking and punching. We cut back to Martin and his toupee and they head down for battle with the Black Knight and he enters the dining hall to stuff his fat face with more roasted beast and the Black Knight enters and just says, I'm going to kick your ass, you fat man. Prepare for thy doom, scareless knave. And then Martin just shits his pants until the queen shows up to watch the sword fight. And there's no music in this scene, which I really Really like mm-hmm. there's lots of echoed clanging of swords and clanging of metal on shields and the technicians are just looking on one of them's just munching on a tuna sandwich quite a unimpressed by all of this and i like this kind of nonchalance of like we've seen seen this a million times before yeah. we're just observing to make sure all this goes well this scene is unnecessarily interrupted by cuts back to john and peter so we have like an action scene it's like let's see what these guys are up to and it's just john sobering up enough to sort of wander around the destroyed saloon to look for his hat then we go back to the sword fighting the editing of this sequence is pretty bad like yeah. just stay with the thing until you, you're done with the thing and then cut over again the black knight switches to a mace at one point yeah starts beating the shit out of martin then he goes back to his sword and then tosses martin over a table and then martin responds by throwing a big bowl of salad at the black knight <laughs> that's my move is just throwing food at someone and hoping they get distracted by something delicious like oh pigs in a blanket i'll be with salad? you in a minute yeah. <laughs> Come on. You don't distract with salad. You don't distract with salad. <laughs> but uh yeah, but the the Black Knight is going after Martin and finally cuts his arm. A pretty deep laceration, man. And that's the point where all the nerds are like, "What's up? Okay, we got to shut this down. That's not supposed to happen." Oppenheimer says, "Cut the power to the robots. They're hurting guests." And so they shut it all down, but the Black Knight keeps going and he just stabs Martin in his fat stomach runs him through yeah and you're like r.i.p martin and his toupee 
okay. Uh-huh. Then we get back to Westworld in the midst of all this madness and tomfoolery. And we see Yul Brenner show up on the streets. John and Peter walking down the main thoroughfare back to the hotel. Peter's like, yeah. oh, I'm going to be sick and I'm freezing. They should have told me to bring a sweater. You can see my nipples peeking through my shirt. It's so embarrassing. And when they see Gil Brenner, when he's like, draw, they turn around. They're like, oh, this guy again. Jeez, oh, not you again. Look, it's too early. Plus, my nipples are starting to chafe on my shirt. John is like, listen, Palamine, how about you just step to the side? I'll take care of him this time. Yul Brenner once more says, draw. And John pulls on him, but Yul Brenner is faster and shoots him for realsies. And he kind of goes spinning to the ground and he looks up at Peter and he goes, oh, I'm shot. Or as we often say on this show, oh, I've been shot. <laughs> and, and then Yul Brenner puts another bullet into him. Yeah, for good measure, finishes the job. And it takes Peter way too long to put two and two together where he's like, so my friend is shot and dead. If that means, but then they can, which means I could. Oh boy. Once he realizes what's up, he just runs. Yeah, he runs away like Prince Humperdinck facing Inigo Montoya. Yeah. It's a like turn on the heels. But also, I totally get it. Like, that is the move. You do not want to face off against a robot what just killed your friend in the streets. You need to run away, process this for a second and figure out what's up. We cut back to the nerds who are like, uh, you're not going to like this, but we don't have any control at all. This is a real, real bad scene. And Oppenheimer is like, well, they're running on a store charge so we can't turn them off because they're basically running on battery power at this point and we get kind of a pair of scenes one is in westworld where we see peter grabbing a horse and taking off and yul brenner is like why i could ride a horse and so he goes to get a horse and chases after peter here we get to see the special effects that were mentioned in the introduction where you get to see the real world through the robot eyes Mm -hmm. and it's a good effect i mean it's one of those things that through a modern perspective it's easy to overlook what was done in this movie, but I think framing it up from at the point in which it came out, it's pretty clever. Yeah, the pixelization and everything is really fun, and especially when it switches to infrared, and I think that stuff works pretty well. We also get a cut to Roman world, where things have gone bad, and it looks to me like some folks are just being straight up fucked to death. It's mayhem in Roman world. Unsurprisingly, Roman world has lost all sense of propriety, and the nerds are like, oh, we also we can't get out of this room yeah they lock when they shut down the power it locks the door on nerd central which also prevents them from getting oxygen and it's raising the temperature in the room yeah peter's on his horse and he's like come on see biscuit ride as fast as the wind he yeah he yeah and yule brenner's just behind him like trotting along at a measured pace yeah <laughs> gonna catch it i'm gonna kill you there's a moment where peter is like high up on this bluff and yule brenner's supervision clocks him on that ridge and he pulls out his rifle and fires and it just shoots richard benjamin's hat off he's like oh boy i did that on purpose i did not have to miss i like the thrill of the hunt peter then goes into this valley and is just lying in wait for yul brenner like he's going to ambush him (laughs) unfortunately because of his super updated sensors yul brenner walks into this valley and hears peter breathing And he just kind of cocks his head, listens for a second, grabs his rifle, and then just starts shooting at Peter with frightening accuracy. And he's like, oh boy, oh boy. And so he just runs away again, and the chase is back on. 
at one point, Peter comes across this guy. It was one of the dudes who collected the dead snakes earlier. And he's in this golf cart. And this technician says, hold up your hands, pal. Hold up your hands. Oh, you're a guest. The machines are going crazy. Hey, let me guess. A robot's trying to kill you? Well, you're probably going to die. Sure, there's some things you could try. Acid for his visual system. Loud noises for his hearing. But where are you going to find that at this point in the movie? You haven't got a chance. Use that later according to the screenplay. Get out of here. The robots have gone nuts. Yeah, so Peter is like, all right, I'm going to leave you here with no help or anything. So goodbye, little man. And so he takes off and immediately Gil Brenner shows up and murders this dude. Yeah, just shoots him and he's gone. So now the chase is once more on. They now leave Westworld. Like, you are leaving the Westworld city limits is the sign they, they pass. Right. He ends up in Roman world. Yul Brenner is tracking Peter by the heat of the horse hooves on the ground i don't remember that i know that he lost his tracking in the river yeah but you know he's a super robot he, he can find him the water kind of throws him but then peter shows up in roman world and just as we saw it's just a bunch of bodies laying around it's a, a, a real mess peter ends up going down a convenient manhole in roman world yeah like mario and so he ends up running through a bunch of these like sterile dark corridors yeah looking for anyone and anything to help him did it bother you the way peter runs with his arms like dashing side to side i mean it did not exude 70s action hero no but i would argue this is not really an action movie this is more of a like a sci-fi adventure movie still somebody should have told him So Peter's walking around these dark tunnels and he makes his way to the robot operating room where there are a few robots and there's a horse. There's a dog or two on a table. Did someone shoot a dog in Westworld? What a bunch of monsters. Worth noting, he ran across the nerd room where everyone was dead. And <laughs> so he just passes that by. When he goes through there, the, the other important thing about that is once he leaves the nerd room, I mean, like a bunch of stupid nerds all dead. Um, We see on the monitor that Yul Brenner has arrived in Roman world and has also found this manhole. Peter looks around the robot operating room and he finds some vials of acid. Uh-huh. And it's a real dental plan acid hurts robots dental plan acid hurts robots if i throw the acid on the robot and so he hears the click of yul brenner's boots and honestly maybe my favorite yul brenner thing is when you hear the click of his footsteps and then he starts running and the only sound is that click getting faster and louder yeah i think that's a really nice moment there's a lot of interesting use of audio in this movie or i would almost say like the lack of audio Mm -hmm. that really helps to create an unsettling atmosphere for each of these this is a perfect one of the click 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 that you know it's i think about like the john williams score from jaws of you know that this killer is getting closer to you when yul brenner enters the lab he's kind of using his heat vision to try to figure out if peter is in there and he kind of walks by him and does a like wait a minute what about this fellow he doesn't look like one of my robot friends as soon as he turns peter throws the vial of acid in his face and he does a real like i'm melting i'm melting and starts you know like smoking and turning away and there's no music and there's no word spoken Mm -hmm. all you hear is the burning robot flesh off this machine's face 
it's pretty good. Yeah, this sequence is where Yul Brenner is is actually chasing him. It's the most Terminator-like, and therefore the part I like the most. Uh-huh. But Peter runs out past him, but Yul Brenner is still in pursuit. Well, that was easy peasy lemon squeezy. Maybe I can find that robot whore from earlier. The one that let me pull off the old pump and dump and get one more squeeze before I head back home to Julie and the kid. Yul Brenner chases after him even with his melted face and tries to shoot at Peter, but his gun has run out of battery. Yeah, that was kind of a what? Yeah, like, oh, guns have batteries in this world? Uh, I miss that. Well, robot guns do. I guess. So Peter makes it to Medieval World, mm-hmm. where he gets into the grand hole where we see that the Black Knight and the Princess have run out of juice. Black Knight's there with the Queen. They're sitting like in their thrones. I was wondering, are they going to get up? Yeah. It's a little unnerving. He does see Martin dead on the floor. Uh-huh. I doubt he even recognizes him. Yeah, if he did, he didn't care, which is the right response to Martin. What does Peter do? Oh, I'm going to hide behind that Black Knight. So Yul Brynner shows back up, and now he can't see-see. He's just using his infrared. But because everybody else is a robot here, then he very clearly sees Peter. But Peter moves towards a torch burning on the wall, and that kind of throws Yul Brynner for a loop. Yul Brynner gets kind of confused by this, but Peter almost screws himself by doing a like a, huh, and when he makes this exhalation yul brenner is like huh? yeah he whips back around but then slowly but surely his attention kind of fades again and so peter being the biggest dumbass of the film is trying to slip away and knocks over a pot at which point <laughs> yul brenner with his completely unnecessary super hearing for this scenario realizes like oh there is where my target is and peter is like how about a little fire scarecrow uh-huh and throws the torch at Yul Brenner, who then bursts into flame. Yeah, it's a good 1970s stuntman on fire, running around, flailing his arms, spinning in circles. Yeah. The practical effects in this are fantastic for the time in which it was. Definitely done with a sense of care and irresponsibility, which <laughs> exactly. is what you need for a good stunt. <laughs> Peter, having set his nemesis on fire, he walks down this hallway of the medieval castle. There's bodies laying hither and yon. Peter goes down some stairs and he goes past a dungeon where you know there was some freaky S&M sex happening. Uh-huh. And there's a woman tied up in one of the cells and she's saying, help me, help me. And we only see her from the back. So you're like, uh-oh. So Peter goes over and unchains her and he says, oh, you're going to be all right. You come with me. And... First off, he should have looked at her hands, see if she's a robot or not, but he... Absolutely. He brings this lady around. He's like, here's a ladle full of water. You look very thirsty. And he pours it in her mouth, and her head, like, goes... And pops off, like, one of the fembots in Austin Powers. And Peter's like, oh, she must have been a robot. Oh, right. I'm in a world of robots. I forgot for a second. <laughs> then, from behind Peter, appears Yule Brenner, burnt black like a marshmallow, with his arm out, still wanting to kill Peter. Uh huh. <laughs> Yul Brenner lunges at Peter and he falls off this small ledge, lands on the ground below, but he's not done yet. Oh no. <laughs> Yul Brenner gets up and turns around, but his face is gone and all we can see is the empty shell of his head. It's so great. And this robot body sparks and smokes and then finally the gunslinger is dead until he returns in Westworld to AKA Future World. The end of the movie is Peter just popping a squat mm-hmm. on the steps and looking a little worse for wear. Wow. That was that was quite a something. And then we hear an ad for Delos that's like, hey, come to Delos and experience an adventure you've never had before. We have a vacation for you. You, 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 you. 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 Yeah. 
And then we roll credits with some fun Western music suitable for Frontierland at a Disney park. Mm -hmm. The end. The end indeed. And that is Westworld. And if you're interested in Future World, I think both of these are available on for free on some streaming services out there. Future World kind of picks up where this one leaves off. It's got Peter Fonda and Blythe Danner. There are a couple of reporters. They show up and there's a plot to take heads of state and replace them with robots. Much like the Bionic Woman episode. The best part of the whole movie is that our heroes come out on top and at the end of the movie, Peter Fonda gives the finger to the villain of the film as they jump on a tram to go off and tell the world of their horror plot oh. it's a great fuck you <laughs> they're gone i do like that I, as i said i think that westworld is a really interesting movie that's also deeply deeply flawed agreed i think you like it more than i do but i don't like this is not the worst movie we've ever seen or anything like that it's got a lot of good ideas i wish that you had had a more interesting director at the helm of this i'm not sure who that director is at this time yeah. uh but you know somebody i like it for what it is and the fact that he wrote and directed it and being such a young director with such an interesting background and pedigree and just this snapshot in time yeah. in which it came out and the influence it had on a lot of other movies no question it, it is highly influential I, I mean it's not the worst movie we're going to see this season it, it, like i said i just i don't happen to respond to this because the stuff that was sort of nightmare fuel for a lot of people just doesn't land with me in the same way i think it's just a little dull i think the editing of the movie doesn't do it any favors and so that kind of propulsion of yul brenner chasing richard benjamin is broken up a little bit too much and if you had just forgotten the black knight stuff let's just set it in westworld let's just make it yul brenner v richard benjamin at the end of this movie and focus on that and i think it would have been a much more interesting and efficient movie one small change i would have made would be to give the gunslinger motivation for killing peter i could see where the argument could be made well the fact that he has no motivation makes it even more frightening all right or that he shot him two times but i think if he'd shot him the first time but if he'd shot him the second time and done it either with malice or pleasure i yeah i see what you're saying when he comes back the third time it's like i have a score to set yeah and i i think there's some of that in this but you're right you could put a finer point on it and make it a little more dramatic i have a question for you Bo. when it comes to our third move, do you have a recommendation yeah all right let me just pitch you an idea let's hear it what if chad yes we dipped into a world of michael crichton nonsense uh-huh and in the director's chair for that movie yes is the man behind superman the movie okay the goonies all right lethal weapon mm. yeah i mean a unquestionably talented director he unquestionably made some good movies right he unquestionably made some not so good movies and that brings us to Timeline, Chad. Uh, that is the next movie we will be talking about. It's got a Billy Connolly sighting, which I think may be our first Billy Connolly movie. I do think so. We've got a Paul Walker. I like in Timeline that Paul Walker's like 33 playing a 21-year-old. Yeah. Right. He's, he's a non-traditional student, to be sure. It's got some business with time travel and changing history and a bunch of nonsense that doesn't make a whole lot of sense and yeah. a lot of action that isn't very good. Mm -hmm. I, it's really got to be quite the trudge to get through. I'm excited. I love a good time travel movie and I love a bad time travel movie even more. So come back and see us in two weeks time. As always, like, rate, review. 
You can send us an email at picksixmovies at gmail.com. You can find us on social media here and there. We're all over the place as we continue through this season's theme of Crichton in the Middle with you. Bo, any final thoughts that you have on Westworld? Oh boy, I accidentally shot myself and now I can't get anything working again. Especially my P.E.K.K.A. that I want to put in one of these robots. Go tell your mama. <laughs> that was hurtful. We'll see you in two weeks time, everybody.